watched hours and guards my sleeping bed. To him I owe my life and breath and all the joys I have. He makes me triumph over death and choose me from the grave. To heaven, the place of his abode, he brings my weary feet, shows me the glories of my God, and makes my joy complete. Since from his bounty I receive such proofs of love divine he has thousands my heart can't help but sing and men cannot control a worthy song to sing. Yet your love is a melody our hearts can't help but sing. Please remain uh, standing. Uh, you will find in your worship folder uh, a prayer card. Uh, if you'll take uh, time later or through the service uh, to fill out any prayer requests, uh, we love to pray with you and for you. Also, if you're joining us on Zoom, the chat window, those prayers will be uh, collected and sent to Gary Brownlee. Uh, the prayer cards themselves can be collected in the little uh, wooden box on the black table as you exit. Uh, you can put them in there and we will... Um, collect them and uh, send them out to our prayer team and begin praying with and for you directly. But let's now uh, continue to pray together as we bring uh, before the Lord our prayers and concerns of the people. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you delighting in the sure knowledge that you have from the beginning of creation, known the beginning, the middle, and the end, that you are a sovereign and almighty God we cannot begin to grasp what it means for us to be responsible and to live our lives. And yet, Lord, for you to be sovereign in all things secure, nothing left to chance. We ask this morning that as we pray for you to work in and through this world, that your kingdom would come and that your glory would be revealed, that we would trust in times of great difficulty in times that appear to us to be out of control or at least terribly unnerving. We pray, Lord, that we would rest in the sure knowledge that you are surprised by none of it, that you are a wise and gracious king, and that even as you give us the opportunity to follow you willingly, Lord, we ask that you would cut times of suffering short that you would bring wisdom and grace, justice and mercy to full force so that the suffering might be shorter lived. 
We particularly pray this morning, Lord, for the continued uh, pandemic. We pray for all of those places around the world that are being ravaged by this illness. Lord, the families that are being destroyed uh, and loss of loved ones, the financial stresses, the ways in which being locked indoors is creating stress within families. Lord, we pray for those who are wrestling with the, the difficulty of depression. Lord, we, we pray that it is not true that suicide rates go up during this time. And yet we know that there is some indication that folks, folks are feeling at the end of themselves, certainly in this country. Lord, we pray for families and children. We pray that in those situations where there might be an temptation for abuse, Lord, or patterns of abuse, that you would create safety. Give us eyes to see that we might discourage and come alongside, care for and, and encourage those who in, in their great pain and suffering, their own challenges and anger, Lord, their unrighteous wrath, that you would protect their loved ones who are around them. Lord, we pray for those who are grieving for the loss of loved ones, that are concerned about the illness, concerned about the care that their loved ones can get in hospitals right now, regardless of whether or not they have COVID. We pray, Lord, that uh, as they enter into the medical system for safety, for strength, and for uh, real um, healing, Lord. We pray for the doctors and the nurses, the physician's assistants, and all those who are working long hours, particularly in places like Florida and Texas, New York and Arizona, where and California, where the cases are significant, where the ICU units are stretched. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to provide. We pray for patients. We pray, Lord, for your church in those places, that we might find ways of caring for the needs of those who are finding themselves at the end of themselves. Lord, we pray for those who are facing eviction because the uh, stay of uh, evictions has been removed. Lord, we pray for those most vulnerable who are losing houses which, and, and apartments and do not know where they will be. Lord, we know that the, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien amongst us are those you have called us to care for. And yet at this moment, they are the ones who might very well likely have the least stability and security. Lord, we know how that impacts the children and their children's children. Give us eyes to see how we might, again, out of our abundance in you, be generous that we might be a small part, along with all of our sister churches, in seeing the worst effects of the temporal realities of this pandemic lightened for those that we have opportunity to serve. Lord, we pray for those in Texas today who are being ravaged by the additional problem of a tropical storm. We pray for safety. We pray for the strain that this will create additionally on health care. Lord, cut these times short. We pray for mercy. We pray, Lord, that we might have the ability to catch our breath. And in all things, Lord, we ask that you would give us the wisdom to turn to you 
to lean on you and to trust that we can follow you in faith and be generous, to be open-handed, and to show the love of Christ by our willingness in these seasons to be those who trust the eternity of your kingdom and not the temporal fears of momentary ups and downs economically or in our health or in our nation's peace and security. Lord, not everything is global. Everything in the end is local. We pray for our own hearts and marriages. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage each one of us as we love our loved ones and our neighbors and care for them well. We pray, Lord, that this would be a time of strengthening between uh, in marriages as we have opportunity to be with one another, encourage one another in Christ-like character. May we see these as times to grow in our knowledge and appreciation of your love for us and our loved ones. We pray that that would extend to our care and generosity to our children. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling with uh, ongoing persistent illnesses. And we pray, Lord, that those chronic illnesses would, again, Lord, be lightened, that you would bring relief. Pray for their care, and we pray for, Lord, healing. We also pray, Lord, for those who are struggling with finances, Lord, we pray for those who are looking for ways to use their gifts and their skills and work, that even in this season, you would provide ways for them to be encouraged by the use of the gifts that you have given them and that you delight to see us use. Lord, we pray for many other needs and concerns that are close to our hearts now as we take a moment of silence and pray for them in the silence of our hearts. Now, Lord, hear us as we pray, as your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Please take a, a moment and turn around, mass on, of course, and uh, extend the uh, peace of the Lord to one another. Uh, through is this too breezy you on you? Uh, the breeze is fine. <laughs> I'm gonna have to take off my jacket because I have no arm. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Hi, Judy. Peace the Lord, Judy. Hi, Judy. Hey, Helen and Jim. Hi. Hi. It's good to see you. Good How are you doing, Roberta? What? Hello. Hello. Hey, Evan Bird and Uncle Richard. Yeah, it's my arm. How are you doing? Dear Lord. And that mountain of Stephen Green. Am I muted? Yeah. <laughs> I can't see. Hey, Judy Bolter, I don't see you. Somebody, uh, <laughs> this is. Yeah.
Hi, Artis. How'd the kids do on their trip? Oh, God. Peace, brothers. And Good morning, sisters. Judy. Good morning, EC. Hi, Sam. Hello. As we come back together, we uh, continue our study in the book of Romans. This morning we're in, uh, still in chapter 1, but we're in verses 18 through 20. Again, uh, last week we started looking at the main theme of Romans uh, in verses that are famous uh, to be sure. If you look at chapter 1 and you open your scriptures, you'll remember that verses 16 and 17 really are Paul's statement about the struck and encourage the church in Rome and really us today to be about. And in his ministry, he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it's the power of God to set people free. It's the power of salvation. And we talked about how that is always a spiritual and a material reality. That we live in a world where we feel, especially because of Greek philosophy, a huge distinction between the spiritual and the physical world. As if one is good and the other is an unfortunate reality we have to get through. But for God's people, redemption and salvation has always been a reuniting of the spiritual and the physical world. To have one without the other is to deny the unity of the whole as it was originally created. And so for Israel, it would have been pretty unhelpful for Moses to simply go down to Egypt and to say to the, to the Hebrew people, good news, you're saved and you're free. In a spiritual sense, I'll see you later. They might have felt somewhat shortchanged by the redemptive act of God simply declaring that they were free, even though they continued to suffer under the temporal weight of slavery. And what God does in the midst of his teaching and leading the people out of Israel is to show a spiritual and a physical reality to what salvation means. And to, so to suggest that somehow Paul here means only our personal salvation and our souls being freed from the guilt of our own sin, and therefore the ability to go to some ethereal place called heaven when we die, is to not understand at all what Paul means and what first century Jewish folks would have understood when Paul says the good news is that salvation is here because there is a new emperor, a new king, and his name is Jesus Christ. And unlike human emperors, he bears the weight of establishing peace, of establishing fellowship, of establishing the richness of what it means to be in his kingdom. He bore the weight of that, as he'll unpack in the rest of the book, through his own death and resurrection. And so when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news because it is the power for salvation, the good news of who Jesus is, has any spiritual and a temporal impact for Paul. He does expect that living out the ethics of the kingdom of God, as Jesus says in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Luke, is going to, quoting Isaiah, set people free, is going to heal people, 
is going to be good news to the poor, is going to both poor in spirit and those who are poor because of the brokenness of this world. Paul then says in 17 that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so we have salvation that is achieved through the work of Christ. And then our engagement in that is faith in what he's done. Our faith built up by our encouragement of one another in our faith and the presence of the Holy Spirit reaffirming the faith that will continue to grow and be a sure hope even in the midst of difficulties. So Paul has launched this great truth. He has summarized his, his, his letter in verses 16 and 17. Now we're going to move into 18 and 20, and let's put that text in front of us. You turn in your scriptures, Romans, 18, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the word and the power of the emotion of anger, this morning we ask that we would be reassured of your love. We ask that you would open your word to us in such a way that we might acknowledge your right action and be comforted in the covering work of Christ. And whatever is said this morning that is not true, Lord, that is harsh, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. When we started uh, the, the study in Romans a couple of months ago, I opened with an uh, illustration about a green suburban, 1970, three-door suburban, that uh, is in various pieces and parts. It hasn't been put back together again. It needed to be taken apart because there were some real problems uh, with it. It needed to be repaired. And I drew the connection between that and the book, and the book of Romans, particularly post-Reformation, in that there were some real problems in the church. There were real problems in the church, uh, in, the, in our brothers and sisters uh, in the Catholic Church. And there was a reality that salvation was being misunderstood, and there was an application of it being kind of bought and sold, and there was a need to take things apart and put them back together. But I suggested that there was a way in which we never quite put it all back together, that the Reformation, because it had to address the certain aspects of what it meant to uh, remove salvation from a commodity and to restore it to an act of grace and mercy of a sovereign and loving God, that the focus on that and the consequences of that is we've never quite gotten back around to putting the whole thing back together. The way that Paul does in Romans as he weaves the entire story of the gospel 
not just the foundation for it, but the implications for what it means to live in a new kingdom and a new creation in Christ. And I would suggest that one of those pieces that has never really been put back into the whole is this notion of God's anger and his wrath, that we don't know what to do with it. That it is for us, particularly as we have worked on our anger issues personally, really hard to understand how anger, or in this translation, wrath, it's the same word uh, used mostly uh, that's translated anger. It's the same word in the uh, Greek New Testament, sorry, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, where God is describing himself and he says, I am a God slow to anger and abounding in love. It's the same uh, Greek word translated in the Septuagint. So we wouldn't really want to translate that Old Testament passages, I am a God slow to wrath. We'd say, no, slow to anger. And this passage, too, would probably do better if it was translated as anger and not wrath. There's a bit of this that is a translation tradition that maybe from a time where the use of God's anger was more of a motivating factor than it probably should have been, at least out of context. That's what I mean. If we leave it out, Sometimes we bring it up and we use it as a hammer, fear the wrath of God, and we use it as a way to talk about those who are acting in a way that we don't understand, or as scripture would certainly say, and we would acknowledge is contrary to who God is, and somewhat blind to our own sin at any given moment, we might look at them, whoever them might be, and say, now there is the group of people who deserve the wrath of God. Look at the things that they do. And so we use wrath, not in the context that Paul has it, not as a part of the whole, but occasionally a hammer or, let's say, a tire iron or maybe uh, some other heavy piece of a truck that hasn't been put back together. And we hit people with it. That is not what Paul means. It is not a way of describing a God who is about to at any given moment let loose in the way that he always wants to. Why I oughta. Not vengeance. Not false restraint. But a true understanding of what love is. And so I want to suggest to us this morning here that a definition for anger in the way that God does it is that it is in love, it is love in action against evil. That God's anger is love in action against what is evil. God's anger is never uh, in the way that mine is, uh, simply the fact that I was annoyed or that my plans were in some way confused or challenged or derailed by your actions. And so I get angry because of what you do to upset me. In God's world and in God's economy, an understanding of his perfect love and the way that he is slow to anger means that he is angry at the things that are robbing us of what it means to be free, what it means to be created in his image, what it means to live at peace. All of the things that rob us of the richness of what it means to be created in his image and he is angry 
at the consequences of those things in the lives of his people and his creation. That he is slow to anger because he desires to give us opportunity to respond in the grace of God, to respond out of love and not uh, uh, evil. All of those motivations are there. He is a patient and gracious God. But when he is moved in anger, it is to move against that which is robbing his people of the salvation which is theirs because of his love. That anger is the result, is, it is love in action against evil. It is seen most clearly in Gethsemane and Golgotha. There is God's love and anger finding their perfect unity as he turns it against himself, against his son. It is perfect in that it is not reactionary. It is not fickle. It is not uncontrolled. It's certainly not devoid of emotion, but not in the way that we see our emotions cause us to sin, but in God's perfect love and the anger that comes to act against evil, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus feels the weight of what it is to bear the rebellion of humanity and to feel the anger of God rising against him as he increasingly bears the weight in preparation for the cross. And he feels it to the degree that he cries out, if there be any other way. That is feeling the weight, not of a couple hours of suffering, which is horrible. But if we think that Jesus is really just not wanting to be scourged, wear a crown of thorns, and be hung on a cross for a few hours, we fail to realize the weight of what it means to see all of the evil that is in my head, let alone every other human being. And in times of evil and despair, where we can scarcely imagine nor want to focus on too long what happens when humans truly are unfettered in their pursuit of evil. In the garden, he begins to bear that weight and it causes him to weep tears of blood. That is anger and love. That is love in action against evil. And Jesus bears the weight of it for you and for me. And he goes to the cross and the weight becomes complete when we hear him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? The first time in Scripture that in direct reference to God the Father, Jesus does not call him father, but uses the technical, less relational term for God. When Jesus has intimate conversation with the father, he always uses the language of my father. He points people to the work of their heavenly father. And in that moment, there is only my God. You are absent from me. 
that is love moved to action against evil because you and I would have suffered that for eternity had he not done it on our behalf. And so as we begin to wrestle with God's judgment of human sin, God's evaluation that our choices about how we should live, spend our money, who we should love, who we should hate, how we should interact, whether we should live in fear or in grace, whether we should fill in the blank. As God begins to evaluate you and me based on his perfect and eternal standard of love, whatever it means for God's anger to be revealed, we know that it started and met its conclusion ultimately and its answer in Christ's work on our behalf. Paul could not move through the rest of this story without reaffirming. Without verse 16 and 17, verse 18 would be truly horrifying, truly terrifying. A perfect and righteous God letting loose his righteous anger on those who have sought to destroy and rebel against him. passage says that what we do then is hide from the truth what is true about God's nature. And I want to just make a couple of hopefully tight points. First, we have to understand that God's definition of hiding from the truth of who he is includes hiding the truth. Several commentaries made this point. The truth about what it means to be created in the image of God. Because humans very quickly, once they rebel against God, begin to create hierarchies. Begin to divide amongst each other. Adam, right out of the gate, the woman you gave me, no longer bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, it's that thing you made. Dehumanizing his connection with Eve as if she was some other creation not connected to him. The woman you gave me. Cain sees his brother as a competitor for divine favor and seeks to remove his competition no longer human, no longer created in the image of God, but one who needs to be removed, simply an impediment to my sense of well-being. If there's only one of us, God will have to like me. Which means that the truth we hide includes racism and sexism, the misuse of money and power and sex. And we can see it often in the other, but to the degree, and the scholars are clear on this, that although Paul is certainly talking to the Gentiles, and certainly some of his uh, references in this passage uh, are going to sound like the culture of Rome in that day, 
post Caligula, post, um, well, in the midst of Nero's Rome, uh, not exactly the most moral place from a biblical standpoint. But interestingly enough, Paul makes two clear references to the Old Testament when he says that though they knew the truth, they hid it from them. The first one comes from Psalm 106, verses 19 and 20. And as that psalm recounts the golden calf, it uses the same language as verses 19 and 20. And then in Jeremiah 2, verses 11, Jeremiah uh, recounts God's lament that has there ever happened a time when a nation has changed or rejected its God? And the answer, broadly speaking, is no. Ancient cultures were incredibly faithful to their gods. They added new gods, but they never left their original God. They exchanged the glory, God says in Jeremiah, of the true God for images and idols. And so as Paul begins to address the evil that men and women do in their hiding what is wrong and right, that he is not simply addressing those people out there, but in the beautiful way that Paul will throughout this book and the double-edged sword that his words are, he will both be calling into account both groups, both those outside and inside, both those who've been long-term believers and those who are new to the faith and learning it. Paul will always challenge both to understand what it means to be people who are recipients of God's grace and a recognition that the right actions of God is to judge the evil that robs us of that freedom. We also need to have a robust understanding of evil. And this morning, I don't have time to unpack anymore what it means to have a robust sense of evil, but let me simply say that we often see the evil in the other but downgrade what we do as simply our reactions to difficult circumstances. But if I were in a mind to, I could help us walk through why, after the oppressive realities of the Versailles Treaty and the economic decay of Germany, a once powerful nation, why the church was seduced into supporting Nazi propaganda that talked about restoring what had been unjustly taken from the Germans at that treaty and how their honor and their right status as co-equal nations within the European setting was being restored by a passionate nationalism that was going to help eliminate both the unfair practices of the allies and deal with those who had snuck in and profited from the chaos after the war, namely those pesky immigrants and non-German people 
the Jews, the gypsies, and a few others. And how, over time, we could understand that in the pain and the, the, the depression of having such difficult circumstances and insecurity, that we just made a couple of decisions, and one decision followed to another. We never planned on being evil. We never planned on figuring out how to process 25,000 people a day through concentrations. We never planned any of that. We were just trying to get back to a good, stable, strong Germany. We all go, that was evil. And it was. But to imagine that those things are incapable of being done in a place that I might live probably underestimates the power of what evil is really able to do in deceiving me into making pragmatic decisions about how I can be safe and how other people want to rob me of what I have. How their humanity, much like Eve had created a problem, just like um, Abel had created a problem, sometimes those problems need to be, well, eliminated. And if it was possible, days after, years after, where there were few people around, we could find the other to blame. How much more so after centuries of sin and evil have permeated the human heart, where we have histories of wronging one another, how much more fertile ground can there be for evil to grow? The wrath of God is revealed against those who seek to blind themselves to the truth of what it means to be created in the image of God, to embrace the reality of new creation through Christ, and to live as if the old evil world rules still apply, as if power really comes from force, as if security really comes from the gun, as if identity comes from being better and more than those who I have described as being less. Evil is profoundly sneaky. It works in the dark. And my encouragement is that we are all tempted to be blinded to what real evil is when it's close to us. And the capability of real evil to rob us and the people around us of their humanity. So my questions this morning are really, how have you or do you downgrade evil? Now this is, I want to be very careful. I know that many of us can be profoundly self-critical and self-abusive. And there is a difference between saying I'm worth nothing because we look at our brokenness and recognizing the power of evil to deceive me. Because if we are self-abusive, that is a form of what evil is doing. And can we recognize an unhealthy, un incorrect version of self-abuse? God says, confess your sins, not wallow and beat yourself up with them. So when we confess our capability and depth of evil, 
That is not the same thing as walking around saying, I'm worth less. You're a pearl of great price. You were worth the creator of the universe sacrificing himself on a cross so that the righteous anger and evil could be dealt with. How dare you suggest that you're not worth anything because you're capable of evil? That's evil telling you that your only worth is if you can create perfection on your own. A recognition of our capability of evil is not self-abuse, it is self-awareness. And it allows us to be confessional and relying now faith on top of faith. Faith now comes into full view. I don't have to downgrade evil because I have faith that God's love for me was never based on how little or how great my evil was. My capability for it individually and my ability to go with the flow as it gains momentum in a culture and in a society. Do we downgrade our evil? We talked about this at a couple of sermons. The incarnation is an indication of God willing to be walk a mile in our shoes. And my suggestion is that to combat the idea and the propensity to downgrade evil is to think through, and particularly in our nation at this time, not the right actions of other people, not to justify the actions of other people, but to put myself in their shoes and to understand to what degree would I, had I engaged or been brought up or faced what they have faced, react the way that they are reacting. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be correction. It doesn't mean that our government shouldn't work against violence in the streets. It doesn't mean anything politically the way we normally divide. But my stars, if we are inclined to view them simply as the other, as their, that which is evil, one way or another, whichever side you think you're on, have you downgraded your propensity or ability to do evil in our judgment of others? Have we walked a mile in their shoes? And in so doing, can we really say that our anger against them is an anger against the evil that is robbing them of their humanity. Because that's what we have the possibility of doing in Christ, is being angry well, being angry at the things we should be angry at. Evil that robs people we love and people we don't even know yet of the dignity and the richness of what it means to be 